Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Yeah, praise God. Praise God. Um, all right, so this is a one-off sermon before we get to our series on Romans next week, uh, and we're calling this one About Page. Uh, most websites, most companies, most churches, everybody's got a website, and on that website, they have the About page. Now, we've checked numerous times over the years, and that is our number one most clicked on thing. People just want to figure out in general, who are these people? Are they a cult? Are they something weird? Or can I trust them? Uh, is this a real church or is this something weird or anything like that? Or they just want to get, they're curious and they want to know about us. And, and one of the things we've observed is we've gotten to be so, uh, uh, over the last few years, we have had <laughs> a steady diet of change. And one of the changes, not just locations and all that stuff, but also uh, the people that make up New Vintage Church. And so um, we've had a lot of different people ask us about our uh, about our origins, about the church itself, where we're going, where we are, all that good stuff. And so we thought, all right, you know what? Let's just take a Sunday and talk about those things. All right. So I hope I hope you'll be blessed by this. Um, I want to. Uh, we'll be in John chapter 15. Uh, if you want to get a Bible, Bible app open here in just a moment. Uh, before our expansion relocation, let's do a little memory lane first. All right. Uh, before our relocation, expansion, etc., uh, here to to this particular place. Uh, we met the first time in any way, shape, or form anything that would become New Venice Church was December 5th, 2010. Uh, it was a Sunday night, and we met at what, uh, in a building that we did not know at the time was going to become our property eventually. We just didn't know it. Uh, we met there one time, uh, about 16 of us, to just pray. And then um, we left, and we went to a church in Rancho Bernardo. Uh, that was a friend of mine, and the reason we did that was because uh, we needed a place that would let us meet for free. And uh, we had, uh, we kind of have rode the free trail as long as we could and uh, ended up coming back to that spot right down the street here on Juniper um, and launched on eight, in April of 2011. In fact, this year will be our 11th birthday on April 17th. It happens to be Easter Sunday this year. So there you go. Yeah. So Easter, we get to celebrate two things uh, this year on Easter. Well, so we, we, uh, we launched there and then uh, shortly thereafter, about six months later, a great miracle happens that blesses our church. We end up inheriting the building. The church that we were meeting in uh, was having some troubles. They dissolved and actually just tossed us the keys to the building, and it was a debt-free building. And so just like that, six months after we launched, we, we ended up taking possession of that building and moving to Sunday mornings, and we remodeled that a couple of times. And so for the next um, six or seven years, we, we poured out our hearts there as best we could, tried to reach the community we were in and doing all that stuff. And I think there's somewhere around 2017, there became kind of an increasing restlessness in the spirit of the church and as a kind of a general feeling that we were, uh, you know, kind of stuck or, or that it wasn't going to be our permanent home, that there was, there was, God had something bigger for our futures. So we, we kind of started praying about it, and, and then we kind of just started looking at maybe about a relocation and looked at some different places, properties, et cetera, et cetera, um, and none of, it, none of it really, we didn't feel good about any of it. Um, at one point, we ended up being able to get inside the Ritz, which was not as easy as you might think. It was incredibly hard. Nobody knew who owned it. Nobody knew uh, where to find the person once we, we found out who owned it, and then trying to convince him to let us in here was not easy. Um, and so we ended up, though, being able to come in here. And had you seen it at the time, most people, I don't think, probably would have looked at it and said, oh, that's it. Um, it, it looked like uh, the war in Afghanistan had been fought here. 
in this room. Uh, this was a, uh, there were holes everywhere in the walls. It was painted, uh, uh, I don't know if I would call it aqua blue uh, on the inside, kind of all the walls, everything. All the chairs were ripped out of the floor and piled in the middle, in a big pile in the middle of the room. Uh, there were, in, in, in the lobby area, um, as a guy had driven a truck through it and, and knocked the walls out. An SDG&E worker had, had had a heart attack behind the wheel of his truck, killed him instantly, unfortunately, and, and he drove through the park across the street and crashed right through the front of the Ritz and knocked out all of the, a lot of the structure and everything. I mean, the place was an absolute disaster. Well, so, you know, <laughs> I don't know if it's because my dad restored junk cars or what it was, but I, I kind of like, what a, you know, I can see the finished product here, you know, or whatever. And we, I, you know, we kind of got, I, I invited uh, the, the staff to come in and a friend of mine that was an architect to come in and we started dreaming about what it would be like to be here. Now, just because we could buy the building doesn't mean we could use it. That's a big problem uh, for two, what ended up becoming two historic buildings, this one and the one next door. And, um, and so yeah, many of you know, and have been along the journey for the grand project. And I think what we've, over the years, we've tried to shelter the church from uh, undue drama of what it took to, for that to take place. Just know it was a sequence of miracles of God that, that allowed us to get here to this point, okay? So the room you're in is a testimony to the faithfulness of God uh, and to some of the things that we're going to talk about today that made New Vintage who it is and allows us, I think, a very unique future uh, if we seize what God has in store. Now, a lot of people have asked us over the years, okay, well, New Vintage, what is that? And we've been called New Venture and Venture and Vintage and, you know, almost about, you know, people that close to getting the name right. Uh, but New Vintage was picked for a reason. There were three reasons, Okay. There were two texts, biblical texts, and one uh, that's a wordplay. Obviously, new and vintage, that was our way of saying the vintage part is us wanting to have our roots planted firmly in the historic Christian faith. New is uh, we want to find new expressions of faith and ways to be relevant to the world that we're living in. At the same time, we bring the best of the historic Christian faith to bear on the world that we're living in, and that and a kind of a commitment to being willing to do whatever it took to reach this generation so in order to reach people that nobody's reaching, you have to be willing to do things that nobody's doing. And we want to be able to do anything almost short of sin to reach people. So that commitment. So both of those at the same time. The two texts, one was the wedding at Cana. And so you, that's a, uh, the story of Jesus turning water to wine, his first public miracle, and wanting to be a place of celebration and joy. So when we started New Vintage, we've always, for the most part, had a, an atmosphere of, of humor and positive energy kind of throughout, wanting people to be able to come to a bit of an oasis. Now, we've had uh, probably about as rough of a, of a 10 or 11 years in terms of what the enemy's thrown at us, of, as most churches have ever, no matter how long they've been in existence. And I think one of the things that's helped us persevere and get through that is a general attitude of of joy, and I, I, I don't. I hope you mean this in the. I mean this in the most spiritual way you can mean it. Playfulness uh, that has allowed us to to be where we are, uh, and so trying to have fun with what we do, and and to try to allow God to use joy and humor kind of throughout um, our ministry. So, wedding at Cana. The other is this one from John chapter fifteen. You can read this with me. This is where Jesus says, "Remain in me, and I will remain in you." For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. So again, using the winemaking imagery, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, and apart from me, you can do nothing. All right, so the commitment first is always to God, and that, that becomes expressed in both the mission statement, which we'll put on the screen here, growing true followers of Christ in a healthy church environment. Two pieces to that. Growing true followers, meaning we don't want just people who kind of randomly kind of you know, just kind of, uh, well, you know, at one point in my life, when I went to summer camp, I put my hand in the air during a prayer, and, and uh, that, that's about the extent of my Christianity or whatever. Not that. Lifelong disciples. In fact, in the early days, we used to use language, uh, uh, more winemaking imagery in, in language. Uh, we're not picking grapes, we're making wine, we would say, things like that. So we're not just trying to say, okay, how many people can we gather or um, how many people can we baptize in a given year? The question is, what does the end product look like over time? And if you buy a new vineyard and you want to make wine, it's going to take you years to do it. Not, not days or months, years. And so we were saying to, our, to, to the church at the time, and we've continued this thought, is I'm not as interested in the right here and now as much as I am at looking over time at the end product of what we've, what we've produced um, at God's hand. So um, the healthy church environment, that comes from another text. That's the parable of the soils, Mark chapter 4, where Jesus puts the emphasis, you know, there's seed that's thrown and it lands on different types of soil. And he makes the point, it doesn't matter how much seed you throw, what matters about its fruitfulness is what kind of soil it lands in. So if the soil's healthy, it doesn't matter, you know, it can be just very little seed, but it'll boom. You'll, you'll have a bumper crop. But if the soil's hard or it doesn't work or the thorns get in there and choke it out, then it doesn't matter how much seed you plant. So we emphasize the, the health of the church. Um, and so we've always been very rigorous about, about trying to, to work on that and to maintain that no matter what we've done. All right, so there's your mission statement. Three values, here we go. Worship, and I'm not going to belabor this one because I just preached a whole sermon series on it. Um, we will love God with everything. This is how we articulated it. So, so again, these three values represent, if you had a true follower of Christ in a healthy church environment, what would the fruit be? Worship. We will love God with everything, offering our lives as living sacrifices, all right? If a church does not put the greatest commandment first, if God is not at the top, if, he's not, if he doesn't lead the agenda of whatever it is that you're doing, the question of whether or not it's actually a church is on the table. A church by its nature puts Jesus as king, that our Heavenly Father is at the top of everything we do, and the Holy Spirit is driving the ministry that we, we're, we're setting out to accomplish, both in its conception and by empowering us to do it according to the fruit that God's Spirit provides. Second, mission. This is the one where people sometimes turn their head a little bit. Um, mission. Get this first phrase, as missionaries. We wanted our church to see themselves as missionaries. Why? Because that's how Jesus sees you. He didn't see you as a, a member or an attender. You weren't called. If you read Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, sit and become a member. It's not. It's go, tell, go, make, go, go, go. And when they wouldn't do it, then he uses the dispersion in Acts. He uses a great persecution to send them out when they refuse to go. And so it's better to go voluntarily, I've found. 
That's what we're supposed to do anyway. And so we, we want to view ourselves as missionaries. So that then impacts the strategy behind what we do. We don't go into the community treating uh, the lost people of, of the city that we're living in as our enemies or whatever. If you were going to be a missionary and I said, all right, hey, uh, you're a missionary. I'm getting this uh, airplane I'm flying. Uh, let's pretend I had a pilot's license too. And I took you and I just, I flew you to, uh, let's say Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and I dropped you off there. Uh, you would need, and your task for the rest of your life is to help win as many people to Jesus as you can. Good luck. And I get in the plane and I fly back. At that point, you've got to figure out what to do. And most missionaries would tell you the first thing you need to do is you need to get to know the people. You need to understand the culture you're living in. You need to become a friend of sinners. It's one of my favorite titles for Jesus. Son of God, that's a good one. Son of man, that's a good one. Son of David, awesome. Lamb of God, incredible. Friend of sinners, which was labeled, he, that was an insult at the time. They, they thought, oh, friend of sinners. That's a fancy way of saying friend of everyone, but particularly the people that society regards as sinners. If you're a missionary, you put yourself in the middle of everything. You don't stand over on the sideline yelling at the people that are over there or view them as your fundamental enemy. You go in and you, you relate to them. You learn to love them. You get to understand the culture and everything, and you, uh, you do that. So we wanted people to see themselves as missionaries, okay? As missionaries, we will lead to Christ those within our sphere of influence and witness to Christ throughout the world. If you're a Christian, you're a missionary, there are two texts that kind of go with this that kind of drive it home, and they become almost as pivotal as the first two we mentioned. Uh, one is Paul's experience in Athens when he goes in and he sees the rampant idolatry of the city of Athens, and rather than flipping out and cursing Athens from afar, he's actually heartbroken, and he decides to engage them, and he does it in this wonderful way where he brings their philosophy in, and he brings in uh, a very charitable view of the way that they're going about their lives. Hey, I see you're very spiritual, and I see, you know, you even have this one idol that says to the unknown God, well, uh, let me tell you about the unknown, the God you don't know. He knows you. And then he goes off and he gives this brilliant exposition of the gospel in very philosophical terms. It's right down their alley. And instead of, and he's supposed to be on lockdown. Everybody wants him to be safe and everything. And he escapes the safe house and, and, and wanders through Athens and does this great thing and trying to help us understand ourselves as missionaries in a place like Athens in the marketplace of our own time and day right here and how we should be relating to the culture we're in as missionaries. The other one. Acts 10 and 12, that's the conversion of Cornelius, first Gentile convert in the Christian faith. Till then, uh, it was something kind of primarily for the Jews, but God broadens it. He always wanted it to be a global gospel, not just something that was for the Jews, and, but, but it wasn't making its way. And so he comes to Peter uh, in a dream, and, and he ends up sending him to Cornelius. And what's striking about Cornelius is, by almost every measure, if he was a 21st century American, we would probably say he was a Christian. In Acts, he is viewed as a very, very good man. In Acts 10.2, it says, He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Well, sounds like he's good to go, is what we would say today, because we're missing the key part. He doesn't know Jesus. That's the key part, right? And so it's a message in that even the good need God. You can't just be a good person that Christianity at its core is not moralism. It's not just, okay, I'm here and you do nice things 
and you're pretty much good to go. And every now and then you can even pray to a God that you barely know or you think is up there or whatever. No, no, no. Christianity's different. It, it, it makes the, the, the truth claim that Jesus is God's Son. It makes the truth claim that, that He is the only way to heaven. And so even if you're a good and moral person, the question of what do you make of Jesus is on the table. And that if you're going to come to the Father, there's only one way for that to happen, John 14, 6. And that's through Him. So it's helping introduce even the Corneliuses of the world and looking at our community then through the eyes of a missionary, which is to see them as Cornelii, if you will. That they're good people. They're not the enemy. They're people who are missing Jesus in their life, but they're not fundamentally awful. They're not, and there are, there are places where everything's in these very strong dualities. Light, dark, good, evil, um, and that there's really, there are no Corneliuses. There's only demon-possessed people in the Bible. But if you look at the ministry of Jesus, you see Zacchaeus, you see Nicodemus, you see uh, people that, Samaritan woman at the well, who's certainly rough around the edges, but their encounters are gentle, not violent. <laughs> they're not, they're not, he doesn't seem to approach them with fear or scorn. And people ultimately are going to respond to how we are toward them. If I think that you're just a uh, if I think you're flaky, if I think you're evil, if I think you're whatever, that's going to come across in how I treat you. And you're going to pick up on it. You can tell when I'm trying to bear with you, or I'm trying to tolerate you, or I can barely keep my lunch down interacting with you. You can tell. And that changes your response to me. And it changes the way that I, I don't want to serve you as readily as I do. But when I view you as somebody who is cherished in the sight of God that God cares about to the point that he's like in Luke 15, he's like a widow digging through the sofa cushions looking for his last coin, her last coin, then that changes the, my response to you, the way that I approach you, the way that I relate to you. And in theory, okay, in practice, it makes you and I a lot more able to talk about the things of God. Christianity is not just um, you know, something for bad people, I'll put that in air quotes, even the good need Jesus. Christianity isn't just for the down and out, it is, but it's also for people that, oh, what comes to mind is there's a title of a book I once read called The Gospel for the Person Who Has Everything. The, the person who thinks they're okay. Described in the book of Revelation as those who say, I I have no need. I need nothing. And he says, no, you're naked, wretched, and poor. You just think you're okay. So our calling here in this place, for the most part, that's who it seems like we're, we're best at reaching, is those people. And we have the others. We reach the others. But that's where God's uniquely gifted us. Um. Third value, community. The way we word it is this way. We will love one another with the love of Christ and use the gifts God's Spirit provides to build up His church. Two pieces to that. Uh, loving one another with the love of Christ means I don't love you like I love pizza. All right? I love you with the love of Christ, which, which is a self-sacrificial love. It's one that says I'll lay my life down. It means that I'm willing to take time, spend energy, spend money if I need to, do whatever I can to make sure that I love you as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it, to love you 
in that kind of sacrificial way. And for us to do that with one another, mean confessing to one another, loving each other, supporting one another, showing hospitality to each other, doing the kinds of things that make a big old smile break out across the face of God because we're willing to do it. And we're doing it with the heart of God pulsating in our very chests. The wording is chosen carefully. It's a truth-based, steadfast love. That's what we're going for. A love so great that it isn't prone to just leaving quickly or dividing. It's steadfast and faithful and true. Now, with, there's your mission and values, but the, where the rubber meets the road is the strategy part. <clears throat> Every church in general, I believe this would be a thoroughly biblical concept, that churches are most faithful in the sight of God when they walk in kind of their unique calling, uh, that they, they stay in the wheelhouse. They, the way that the Spirit has gifted them is the way that they lean in most. So it's, it's a macrocosm, if you will, of what we're supposed to do personally. So we're told that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to everybody in the church just as He chose. And the churches comprised of those people then become this macrocosm of that. So the Holy Spirit does something kind of unique and special with churches, that we're not all supposed to be the same, per se. Um, and so while we're all one body and we all bless each other and try to support each other and, and should be glad that one another's around and existing and trying to reach different groups of people, we do have something here at New Vintage that is unique. It's unique in my experience. Uh, Ted Williams, the baseball player, most people think he was overall the greatest hitter that ever lived, wrote a book called The Science of Hitting. And in that book, uh, go ahead and put this next slide up. This is how he saw hitting. Um, you see all the colored baseballs there. That's this uh, lighting up. Now, that's Ted Williams' average, depending on where the ball was pitched inside the strike zone. So uh, if you got it right down the middle, you were in trouble. Ted would whack you to the 10 to 400 average uh, there. Now, you go uh, up and in, he's still batting 300 up there. The worst spot was down and away. He's 230 down there. 250, low and in. And so what Williams understands and what he describes in the book is what I need to do is work to get a pitch that is there in that red zone, if I can. And if not, then somewhere in that orange zone. One of the best things that a church can do for itself is from a strategy standpoint, do not swing at everything. Okay, when you do that, you end up batting 230 a lot, okay? Because the enemy isn't necessarily going to send you everything that he thinks is going to help you prosper. He's trying to sabotage you, and so you have to be careful, patient, prayerful in how you go about figuring out, okay, how are we going to do this? You have to have kind of almost like a, a spiritual seismograph internally that can sense, okay, I think God's, God's leading here, and it's tested with the Word of God and, and bathed in prayer as it goes forward. So I'm going to give you just a few things that I think make up our, our strengths, if you will, our, our red zone there. Um, I do think there are things that we do okay at and, and different things that we need to do, even if it's not our best fit. But there is a wheelhouse, if you will. There is a red zone that I think God has blessed our church with. So I'm going to start with uh, a, a really an illustration, really, of, of, uh, of the strength is the ministry team that serves here as an illustration of what we do well. Um, our ministry team and our body, our current church here at MVC, is for the first time really a wonderful mix of wisdom and experience and new energy and new faith and vitality. 
I think for our first seven, eight years, we were we tended to draw um, established Christians that had kind of dropped out for a while, uh, and they wanted we were something that was kind of fresh, and they could throw themselves into and continue to kind of they felt like they could pick up where they left off almost and kind of continue to deepen their faith and everything. So we tended to draw a lot of that, and so we were like a a ship at sea where at times we would lean to one side and almost capsize because we'd get so full of established Christians that we didn't have uh, anybody with any relationships outside the faith. So, so reaching people became increasingly difficult. Uh, tr- we started to get traditional. We started to get kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, it, it, it became one of those churches where everybody sits around talking about how deep everybody is. And in reality, you're not doing anything except talking about how deep you are. You need to, you need to, we needed the new, the new faith, the new stuff that causes the people over here to rise up and say, okay, we're going to pour ourselves into these people. And that's how they learn how to love each other. And they teach these folks how to love each other is by role modeling and mentoring and, and shaping and, and, and stuff like that. Okay. And then we would get spurts where we would get a lot of new people. And so then the ship would go the other way and we would end up, we, we needed more maturity and we needed more um, wisdom and experience and, and people who just knew how to do the church thing. They knew, I, I know, I know how to show up for church. I know how to give money. I know how to serve. I know how to greet. I know how to serve communion. I know how to just, I know things. I know how to do this. Okay. We needed those folks. And then God would provide and the ba- and the ship would, would balance back out on our ministry team right now. There are seven members of the pastoral team. Uh, only a couple of us are full-time, but there's seven on the pastoral team. Five of those seven have 20 years or more of ministry experience. That's a lot, guys, just so you know. That's a lot of people. Normally, you got one, maybe two of those on a team our size. We got five. And the two um, that are the youngest on the team, you just saw them on the stage. They were here, and they've done a lot of ministry. They're very experienced for their age, 26 and 22. Um, you know, they started in their teens when they started doing it. Now we've got a couple of interns of people that are newer to the faith that are growing up underneath that very seasoned team and kind of pastors in training that are growing up underneath them. But what it does is it allows us something very, very unique as a church. We are able to put people that are either A, very new to the faith, or B, very young into positions of leadership, probably a little bit beyond what they would get in a normal church because you have experience and seasoning around them. And so if you were to like pull the curtain back and look at what makes NBC run on, on a given week, 16 to 25, that, that age bracket here, and in some cases younger than that, really makes this church go. Um, most of the time, the band's full of them. They're running children's ministry. They're up in the tech booth. They're playing in the band. They're, they're doing all sorts of things in the life of the church. And I think that that does several things long-term for the kingdom. It's a huge win because the next generation, now that they're, they're growing in Christ and wherever they go, they can lead. You, you would be so thrilled if you knew how well our college kids that graduated out last year are doing spiritually on the college campuses they're at and how they're leading things for Jesus wherever they are. Awesome. And that started by them being able to start leading inside the church at 16, which was only possible because we had experienced people around them. Ministry is more caught than taught. Uh, Raise your hand if you know anything about working on a car. Let me see who we got here. All right, one person. Sweet. 
Um, we, all, we make the mechanics of this city rich, don't we, this church does. Uh, well, those of you who know how to work on cars at all, you usually learn that not by going to mechanic school. You learned it because you watched your dad work on the car when it broke down in your house. Or they like, had a hobby of working on cars. Or your parents drove a terrible car that broke down all the time. And so the hood was up as much as it was down. And you learned by going over and watching the steam come out that, that and okay, and dad's doing this, mom's doing that, or whatever, what the problem was. And that taught you how to do it. Ministry is very similar. Uh, I do think there's benefit to the seminary and things like that, especially if you're going to teach. But a lot of it is just, it's more caught than taught. And we have a great lab to do that in here, whether you're older and new to the faith or young, maybe a veteran youngster, all stripes of new and young can grow here in ways that are uncommon. Agility, this is another one. This isn't a sexy one, but man, is it key, especially if you hit a pandemic anytime soon. Um, agility is huge. Agility, what I mean is we are, we are not change averse. We can move very quickly. We can make decisions quickly. We can make things happen really quickly. Um, for like right now, even in this room, uh, this, this project happened in less than two years. Okay. And part of the reason that happened, whereas there's a, a mead place down the street that's been waiting two and a half years and hadn't really started construction yet in any meaningful way trying to get permits and stuff like that, is because there's decisions that need to be made, and then there, you have to manage change processes. Um, when, when a lot of churches are trying to do things, they have layers and layers of committees that things have to go through. Oh, you know, have you uh, gone to the, to the color committee to talk about what the paint color on the wall is going to be? Uh, have you been to the, you need to talk to the, uh, to the I don't know, the, essentially the Ways and Means Committee of the church before you can uh, spend, you know, $100 on a slab of, meat for a youth ministry thing or a, or a round of pizza or whatever. And those layers make things very, um, they, make, they get you stuck. And committees, we don't have committees of any kind here. Committees kill things. We have ministry teams. They do things. Uh, and so, and we try to have uh, teams of people who understand what we're trying to do. And so we can make things uh, happen really quickly. So for instance, in the pandemic, uh, when most churches were trying to figure out what they were going to do, they had four or five different layers. I have friends that, that died in the wilderness over this. They, they had layers of committees they had to get approval from, and they didn't agree with each other. And so they couldn't, they couldn't, make, they couldn't pivot, they couldn't make moves, they couldn't do things like that. And um, they ended up not being able to change quickly enough. Um, in NBC, change has been a part of who we are since day one. It just has been. Our, the people we tend to draw tend to be okay with change, and we don't use it as some sort of like weird... Uh, substance abuse or something, we use it when we need to and to try to stay in motion so that we don't end up um, being stuck in a place that, that we really don't want to be. So when the pandemic hit, we had already changed worship venues 15 times in the year before. From the art center salons, the museum, to the salons, to the little theater, to the salons, back to the museum, back to the little theaters, back to the winter. And we were in motion already. So when we had to all of a sudden go, oh, now we just landed at 355. And guess what? Now we got to go online. Okay. All right. Boom, 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 boom. And, and, and we were up and ready to go. Okay. That's a huge advantage in a place like this where there's change in the air all the time. Now, we didn't lose our roots. Man, got those roots down in the historic Christian faith. Uh, still there, still taking communion, still doing whatever. And then when it was time to go to the park, hey, we're going to go outside for a while. And then we go to the park. And then after that, then we come in here. And then it's 
hey, now we're going to shut down again. Now we're going to open again. Now we're going to, okay, that's a, a, a very difficult thing for anybody, even a very change embracing church like ourselves. But it was a key strength for us. Joy, youth, and energy. I'll add those to the mix. Joy, there's always been a general playfulness to this church. Uh, we enjoy making fun of each other. We enjoy having fun. We enjoy playing softball together. Uh, we enjoy doing the things that, that make you laugh, okay? So uh, I think that's important in the heavy times in which we live. If you can have joys of fruit of the Spirit, it's something that's core to, to who we are. And going back to the wedding at Canaan, we wanted to be a place of joy. The, the, the youthfulness of this place, but even our people, um, I'll be in pastor gatherings sometimes, and people will be griping about the old people in their church. Our old people are the best. Like, honestly, our old people... Man, and you know who you are. I don't need to single you out. But, uh, but our old people at NBC are just, they're different kind of old people. They're awesome. They're like some of the funnest people in the whole place. So all that just to say, again, that's a, that's, that's a value that kind of transcends age. All right? You can be a total lemon sucker as a, as a teenager. Right? You don't have, that's not an age thing. Or you can be a grumpy old man, a grumpy old woman, or a grumpy old whatever. Our, our church has always tended to strive for that. And so when we get to a point that we're too, that we're starting to get too heavy or too whatever, we notice it. It's like, oh man, we're getting, what's going on? Like it's starting to get, you know, and, it, and sometimes I'll go preach at other, other churches uh, for different things and, and they can't laugh. They don't even know, they couldn't find it in a dictionary. They couldn't find laughter. Everybody's too heavy. And so again, I think that's strong. It helps you it helps you when you need to be heavy to not have been heavy for 10 years prior to the point at which you now have to lift heavy weight. And again, energy. So those are the kinds of things that, that we need to keep doing because we are most faithful and effective usually when we are walking in our unique calling, okay? And, and so God's kind of created a very unique church. Now, I think what makes us unique for our time is different than it was in 2018. We are a somewhat different church. Our ability to adapt to change is something that has set us apart over the years, and I think we've kept that. Um, but God has brought us a new core, a, a new group of disciples for the new era that we're in, new people gathered by God to, to, to do a new thing. And so he's given us a unique place where we are right now at the Grand. So for those of you who don't know what this is or why it matters, uh, this place that we're in, let me explain it to you. We built the Grand for three reasons, essentially. All right, one was to open ourselves up to new ministry opportunities. We thought we could reach more people here than we could back at our former property. Uh, we wanted to help uh, people meet Jesus through uh, radical hospitality is what we call it. Um, when, when I invite you into my house, um, that is, that's my way of saying I trust you. That's my way of opening myself up to you. And this gives us a chance to get people in here quite literally a hundred times more outsiders foot traffic wise in this facility than we could ever have gotten at Juniper. Um, and giving a gift to our, our city. Let me, um, let me introduce you to something that happened right here on this stage last night. There were 90 teenagers on this stage. Uh, let me show you a clip. This is from Soundcheck, all right, from a group called Mainly Mozart that played here last night. Lincoln, take it away, good sir.
it's like sound check. Now I admit, when I said this is a teen orchestra, you thought it was going to be terrible, didn't you? I did. As soon as I saw it, so I, I saw this clip come through last night, and I was like, okay, here we go. This is going to sound, you know, like a bunch of ducks being stepped on, um, you know, with a drum behind it or something, like most high school bands do. And I mean, that was their sound check, right? So you got 90, 90 people on this stage playing. You've got a full house in here. Now, on a normal Saturday night, if we were at June, there'd be nobody in here, right? So the tie becomes the fact that we opened our, our building up to them. Uh, they know that we run the place. Our people are staffing it. And so you're building relational goodwill, right? And so over time, if you have enough shots on goal there, that's going to start bearing fruit. Well, we've already started to see that, right? So there's a part where you're planting the seed, but now you can start seeing the, the growth. And by the simple giving of ourselves to our city and saying, hey, we're one to help be a blessing to you however we can, let us know, and welcoming them in. I mean, we do things from, um, we've got our own theater company now here at the Ritz. Uh, we've got, we had, a, we had an orthodontics group in here. Uh, doing their corporate thing. I mean, we, 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 every eclectic kind of thing you can think of in here, and every single time, there's relationship building that goes on. Every single time. Now, I could throw, uh, you know, you get one shot at Easter and Christmas, basically, if, if, you're, if you're in a normal church setting. So the method is this. Normally, you go, you build a church building somewhere in the suburbs or whatever, and then you spend your energy trying to get people to come in. This is the flip of that. This is where you build a building that people are already in all the time. And then I ask you guys to show up on Sunday, which is way easier. Okay. And, uh, and so when we do that, then we, that puts us in proximity. We are, to my knowledge, the only church in America where if you're in the lobby out there on a Sunday morning, you have no idea who's part of the church and who isn't. Now that's kind of creepy in one way for those of us who like our lines real crisp. But I think I think God would view that as a huge home run. He's like, look at him. On Sunday morning, they have found a way to put themselves in proximity to people who don't yet know Jesus um, and be able to not just go, hey, what are you doing in the lobby of my church? Whose church? I'm sorry again. You repeat that. You know, and so that is where the strategy of the place has, has come in, and it is different. Um, quick story. When we were building this, when the, we first bought the buildings and people heard we were coming in here. The art gallery next door was not exactly thrilled to know that we were coming in and that there would be a church here. I don't know what she pictured was, was going to be the church that came in here, but what was great was um, she was in there kind of saying that she was not thrilled, we'll put it that way, using, using passion and, uh, and colorful art, art, artsy language, we'll say. And she, one of her front desk people uh, heard that the church, you know, heard her ranting and said, who's the church? And she says, I don't know, new, new vintage, I think it is. And the front desk person, who's not a Christian and does not go here, okay, said to her, new vintage, oh, they're great, you're going to love them. In the list of qualifications for, for elders, one that gets passed over all the time is, has a good reputation with outsiders. And if the church is in some way supposed to have the same kind of virtues as you would see in, say, the person and work of Jesus, and, uh, say, in those kind of traits, which is kind of this high and lofty character, man, as a pastor, to have outsiders saying that you're awesome is awesome. 
I mean, that's like, that's something you just go, dude, I don't think it's a surprise that in the uh, years of New Vintage's existence, the two years in which we baptize the most people are 2020 and 2021. I don't think it's a surprise. And the more we've opened ourselves up to the outsider, the more God sends them our way. And so that's what we need to be praying for. And I want you to join me in that, okay? Pray, pray, pray that God will continue to do it. And then we need to stay blessable. And we need to, when he sends people that are seeking the Lord our way, to embrace them the way that Jesus uh, would do it. So I've gone too long, so I need to get through what, what's coming down the pike in 2022. Um, I want to say... Um, um, every year has a word that if you look backward at it, you can describe the year with a word. 2020, I would use surviving. That was the word. Maybe adapting, but surviving is probably the truth more than adapting. Adapting is a little charitable way to put it. In 2020, everybody was holding on for dear life. 2021 was learning. We learned a ton being in here for a year. We learned what not to do. We learned that works, that doesn't work. That blew up in our face, that thrived. We learned by a year of just being in here uh, so much. And so this is going to be the year of deepening, all right? We're going to go deeper, and we're going to do that in several ways. Um, in rapid fire, here we go. Uh, you're going to get a steady diet of new biblical teaching and worship experiences here. And understand, it is a desire for us to deepen and strengthen the body, part because we have so many new people here. We need to pay attention to that. Because, man, if we can take all this exuberant, new, excited, energetic, uh, community of new people that have come to the Lord here in the last couple of years and marry that to the wisdom experience, everything about it. Now you've got something. If you only have one, then, then you're going to end up in a problem. You'll be stodgy and traditional and legalistic, or you'll end up kind of capsizing with heresy and, and lack of morals and character and things that make God upset. You don't want that. But if you can throw them together, man. And so we're going to take it and we're going to try and get it deeper. So you're going to see Worship nights, we're going to try and do six of them this year instead of two. Um, we're bringing the two big major conferences back. If we'll be here uh, for women uh, in, in a month or so, early March, sign up for that. The Global, Global Leadership Summit will be back here in August. Uh, so put that on your calendar. NVU will make its return uh, in March. I'll be teaching uh, the first session, Advanced Introduction to the New Testament, right after getting off the plane from Israel. So I will be fired up and ready to go. I will be bloodshot-eyed, but I will be full. So brace yourself for that. Advanced intro to the New Testament. Uh, new groups starting for men, for women, and for new Christians. Okay? By the way, if you're a new Christian, that isn't something to be sad about. That's something to be excited about. All right? So we've got groups just for you. Amen. Amen. And so if you're here, don't feel like, oh, no, you know, I'm a new Christian. I, you're going to make me go sit at the kiddie table educationally. Jump in as deep of the water as you want, but... There are some things that help you introduce you to the basics of the Christian faith. And so we're starting some groups uh, just for that, okay? Kind of home-based groups that, that really are designed to get new Christians in a room together and help teach them the basics of the Christian faith over three or four months' time. Um, next week, we begin a new journey through Romans uh, called Not Ashamed. And as we're doing it, um, <laughs> This is our good man, DJ Iverson, co-founder of New Vintage Church with me that did some of this work on the left. Yeah, uh, that's not normal sermon artwork, I'll tell you that. He does a great job. And let me tell you something, too. One of the things I appreciated about this was, uh, if you're a preacher, you do Romans every so often just because Romans is just awesome. It's like the wheelhouse of, of New Testament text. 
Um, he could have just not redrawn that. He could have used some from the past or whatever. And he spent great care in do it, doing it again for this iteration of it. And so allow me to use an illustration from, from my current existence. I played in my baseball alumni game for my high school yesterday and I pitched. And so despite the fact that I'm smiling, I'm in complete physical agony, okay? <laughs> From the waist down, I, any, any, any movement I make is, uh, is excruciating, okay? Um, but here's what I like about being sore today. I changed my attitude about this. Last night, I was lamenting. I'm old, you know? I'm falling apart, you know? And I just, I, I said, no, no, no. I got to check my attitude here. You know what it means? If you're sore, you played the game. That's what it means. It hurts. If it hurts bad, you played hard, <laughs> right? So what I'm inviting you to do is get spiritually sore this year. Play the game, play it hard. What's the game? Discipleship. And I would rather, I mean, go ask an NFL player, you know, how good a shape you're in. If you're doing it right, you should be sore. Ask an NFL player on Monday, hey, are you sore? Yeah, they're sore. It's so when you're when you're playing a game like that, you're gonna be sore when you're when those kind of collisions are happening. And from a spiritual standpoint, okay, there are two camps, like there were yesterday. The the old guys, that's my generation, we were the oldest class yesterday. 1993. We were the only ones on the sheet where a one led off the class number. Everybody else was from the 2000s and forward. And we were playing by and large not to get hurt. Right? That's the goal. Once you hit your 40s, you're playing a game, try not to go to the hospital. And if you don't, you did all right. right? Okay, over here, the youngsters, uh, they weren't afraid, and they were out rolling around in the dirt, diving for things and, and all of that, right? Okay? There are people, spiritually speaking, who play not to get hurt. Oh, I had a bad experience at a church 10 years ago. I'm sorry that happened. You can choose to let it end your whole journey of faith, or you can decide that you're willing to play again. Uh, it could be that over here is where God always wanted you to be, or that you never came here. What hurt you was staying over there. That it was a result more of deciding to play not to get hurt rather than jumping all the way in and diving and thriving and, and really going after it. So you hear me say this to you all the time. So when are you going to start listening, man? The good stuff is here on this side. There isn't much good over here. This is fear-based, boring, and probably idolatrous because I'm saying uh, that even if God invites me to a different way of life, I don't think that I should do it because I'm too afraid. Or I'm afraid he will let, he's asking me to do something that's over my head or that would really permanently injure me. But over here, over here, this is the stuff. This is what it was supposed to be. So every time that I see one of our teenagers do what they do normally on a Sunday, up at 6 o'clock or before, here at the building before 7 usually, I mean, they serve in church, everything, tech, kids, slides, um, you know, then they hang out together in the afternoon. They come back at four to rehearse for the youth ministry. Then they have their night together from six on, and then they go out together afterwards, and then my daughter comes home at nine or 10 and is still, get this, happy. 
Okay, that's playing like this. Or, ah, dude, if I have to get up early, you know, I'm going to have to go to bed before two. Is that what you want? Forget that. There's not much joy over there. The joy is here. The pain's here too. But the joy is here. So, sisters and brothers, that's your invitation. I'm out of time. Let's take communion. <laughs> All right, let's get around the table. And uh, as we do, this is part of having our roots in the historic Christian faith um, is the Lord's Supper. Uh, when you're starting a new church, you have to make decisions about things like these. And a lot of churches don't do it every week because uh, it's logistically inconvenient uh, or they're afraid it'll get stale. And um, we've done it every week, and I doubt it'll change at any point in our future, as long as I'm here at least, uh, because it's an important thing to remember Jesus when the church gathers. And it gives us, um, the early church role modeled it for us, and for people as preoccupied as we are to kind of clear our thought world and bring it all back to Jesus is so important. So take what we just talked about. And remember what Jesus said. Apart from him, you can do nothing. So resolve, say, God, I'm going to remain. I'm going to remain in you. Help me to remain in you. If you've kind of detached from the vine, maybe this is your moment to come back to the, to the middle or, you know, reattach yourself. If you've been playing ball over here in lazy town or whatever or fear town, maybe this is the day that you say, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to really do it. You can't stop me from doing this now. May the Holy Spirit guide you in your prayer as we remember Jesus now. Let's pray. Lord, with bread and cup, we remember Jesus, our Lord and Savior, without whom we can do nothing. And yet, Father, uh, you've offered, you, you've offered us the resources of the Holy Spirit, your very fire to guide us. And so, Father, may the Spirit lead us now as we reflect on how we want to live out our faith going forward, what you want from us. Father, we, you've guided our church from day one, and please, 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 Lord, never stop. We are so grateful for what you have done here at NBC and what you're doing among us right now. We pray a prayer of gratitude and reflection now to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.